morning, guys. Good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, if you guys wouldn't mind opening your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 3 is where we're at today. One of the things we'll, we've been noticing in Jesus' ministry up to this point is that he's kind of had this public teaching, itinerant preacher type ministry. He's been going around uh, the predominant area that he's focused his ministry on is this area called the Sea of Galilee. It's uh, kind of in the central area of Israel. And... Uh, Kind of a very country, rural type area that Jesus focused the majority of his teaching ministry on, healing and whatnot. But what had happened was uh, Jesus' ministry spread. People started finding out about it. All sorts of people from all around were traveling to just come into this little location. In some ways, uh, Jesus' ministry to more or less kind of put the region of Galilee on the map. I mean, it was, it was known as an area, but for the most part, it was known as kind of a place where revolutionaries would go. And in some way, Jesus was starting a brand new revolution. It was not like the way the other revolutions had happened or transpired prior. This one was radical. It was different, just like uh, the other ones claimed to be or thought they were. But this one was going to be real and powerful. And what Jesus does when he begins this ministry and he's preaching and teaching, all these swarms of people are gathering around to follow and to flock upon Jesus. Uh, we're told by the uh, writer Mark that people traveled as far away as Tyre and Sidon, which uh, was kind of on the north or on the, on the seacoast uh, to the west of the region of the Sea of Galilee, about 100, 100 miles or so north up the coast. So we'd imagine in a country, in a region, in a time when the predominant way by which people traveled was by foot, can you imagine traveling 100 miles uh, just across desert to go hear your favorite preacher? Or to hear rumors of a guy that people have claimed who can do amazing things, do miraculous things. In some ways, it would be kind of similar to today, obviously, proportionately to where people would travel, say, thousands of miles by jet just to get someplace. So people were literally coming all over the country just to hear Jesus. And so this caused Jesus to actually have to change the way he did his ministry. We'll see how that takes shape as we read the passage in a moment here. But one of the most important things that Jesus does as by way of formation of his ministry is for the very first time what Jesus does is he gathers out of this large number of followers called disciples a handful of people whom he's going to now call and appoint as being apostles. And Jesus will basically develop a leadership team. This team will be people that will be uh, trained and taught and led by Jesus, they'll hang out with Jesus, they'll spend the majority of time with Jesus, and then ultimately they will be commissioned by Jesus to go do the work of the ministry, just like Jesus was doing. They'll preach like Jesus preached, they will heal like Jesus healed, they will cast out demons like Jesus casted out demons. And what Jesus does here is very strategic, because he realizes, as a human being, based upon limitations of being a human being, he can't do everything on his own. But Jesus also realizes that his ministry has a shelf life, meaning there's an expiration date, meaning Jesus will die in a short few years. So what Jesus is doing is he's looking beyond the fact of the time when he will die, when he will rise again, and then when he will ascend into heaven. He was looking to cause the ministry, help the ministry to continue to keep duplicating itself, continue to keep growing and building and establishing the momentum that he started through it long after his death. You and I today are here because of what happened in this chapter. That's, that's how powerful this is. What Jesus does 
in chapter 3 of the Gospel of Mark is really so powerful, so transformative, that literally the world is changed by what Jesus does here in this chapter. So that's what we'll take a look at. I'll pray, then we'll begin by reading the passage of Scripture, then we'll talk about it, and then we'll kind of get into taking a look at some lessons that Jesus does in terms of leadership and how he builds this leadership, so on and so forth. So let's pray, then we'll get to work. God, we ask you right now that you would help us. We need your wisdom. We need your strength. God, what we don't need is we don't just, we, we don't need just simply a Bible study. We don't need mere information. We need information that's empowered by the Holy Spirit to bring about transformation in our lives. And so, God, I ask you right now that you would help me to be able to, to speak in a way that just properly represents who you are, what you're like, and what you desire to do. So, Father, we just commit this morning in your hands. And we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 3. I'm going to pick it up around verse 7. And we'll uh, keep going. It says this. Then Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. So that's Mark's way of saying people have literally gathered, have tracked Jesus down from all around the entire country and even beyond the country of Jerusalem. It goes on to say, And when the great crowd had heard what he was doing, uh, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. The actual Greek that's used there is the basically just as I, as, as I just read it. They were literally crushing him. In other words, this is a life or death issue for, for Jesus, perhaps, and even for his uh, disciples, so that somebody doesn't get hurt, whether it be Jesus or his other disciples, that the crowds were literally becoming mobs. So maybe you've seen uh, on the news, like in Egypt or some of these areas where there's been these, uh, these revolts, um, obviously kind of similar to that without all the aggression. These are people that are not aggressive, they're not angry, they're not bitter. These are people that are literally like mobs. They're trying to do something well, kind of like Walmart on Black Friday. That's what's going on here, is that these people are pressing around Jesus, pushing in upon him. They're trying to take their own territory, and yet Jesus recognizes this is not safe for him nor any of his disciples. So he actually asks his disciples to establish another way by which he can continue his ministry. So again, he's on a lake. It's called the Sea of Galilee. And they, he asks them to do what they know best, which is to get a fishing boat. They gather a fishing boat, and Jesus uh, then pushes out some length from the shore. And they're in this fishing boat. He's just offshore, and he's able to use basically the modern means of the time to communicate and preach and proclaim the gospel. Obviously, back in Jesus' day, um, if he were to be living today, he would use a PA. He would set up a stage. He would have bodyguards around the stage to protect Jesus. He doesn't have that, so what Jesus does is he uses the modern means of the day, and he sets out on a boat, and he uses the surrounding acoustics, which uh, I've been to the Sea of Galilee. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, you can be on a boat, and we've actually been on a boat, and we've, been on, we've seen another boat that's literally hundreds of yards away, and you can actually hear people talking. It's, it's unbelievable. Like, like the acoustics on the Sea of Galilee are phenomenal. I don't know how it works like that, but it just works. You can be really far away from somebody. Even if they're talking just at a regular tone of voice, you can hear what they're saying. So here's Jesus preaching to this large mob of people in a boat on the seashore, looking at these people, communicating to them the gospel, using the means of the day to proclaim the message that he was sent to proclaim. Verse 5, it says, and he looked around. Um, sorry. 
verse 9, it says, And he told his disciples to make a boat ready, and because of the crowd, lest they crush him. He says, For he had healed many, and they had all sorts of diseases. They pressed around him, and he touched them. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him, and they cried out. So obviously these are unclean spirits in a host body, which is meaning a human being, a person who is somehow oppressed or possessed by some sort of spirit. So obviously spirits don't have bodies, so they're not going to kneel down unless they're in a host body, which is, is the case right here. So these people kneel down before Jesus and they cry out, you are the son of God. But verse 12, Jesus does something curious. He says, and he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Now scholars have debated all the time for 2,000 years, why would Jesus tell these demons or these demoniac uh, possessed or oppressed people not to uh, communicate the truth? Well, again, we don't know exactly why because there's no direct answer why. So again, all we have is just simply spe speculation, which I don't want to build a lot on speculation. But some have just simply suggested and maybe might be the most logical. Uh, you don't want a bunch of demons as your PA uh, or PR campaign managers, right? It's not good to have demons, people that are on the opposite team from you, going around proclaiming the message of who you are, which, again, kind of another little bit of an irony, I think, within a text, is that the demons, there's no confusion amongst the demons as to who Jesus is. I find this ironic because in a lot of ways, amongst us human beings, there's a lot of confusion as to who Jesus is. You watch television, you watch uh, programs, you, you listen to the radio, whatever it is that you hear, you hear your favorite artist, Everybody has some sort of opinion about Jesus. Most of the opinions are just that. They are their opinions. They're false. They're wrong. They contradict each other. There's a lot of misinformation about Jesus. Not so amongst the demons. The demons know exactly who Jesus is. They're not confused. They're not, uh, they, they, but the problem is the distinction with the demons is even though they're completely orthodox in their theology, they don't love Jesus. That's the distinction. It's one of the reasons why uh, James, uh, in the New Testament book, says the demons believe and they tremble. So the reality is, is you need to know this because some of you are confused. You're deeply confused as to who Jesus is. Um, and the reality is that demons are not confused. The only difference is that demons don't love Jesus. What we want to make certain is that we understand who Jesus is because God reveals himself to us through his word, but that we also love Jesus. So we want to make certain that there's a congruency between what we understand, our orthodoxy, how we understand who God is, our theological uh, suppositions, that there's a congruency between what we believe about Jesus and how we feel about Jesus, that we love him, that the affections of our hearts are directed properly and accordingly to him. So in other words, it's not enough for you to just simply have proper theological convictions. It's not enough for you to simply have certain ideas, and you might even say, but my ideas are true. Yeah, but do you love Jesus? That's really the issue. Do you really love him? Do you have affections in your heart for Jesus? That's really the sign of salvation. The fact of the matter is that the demons don't have salvation. They're not saved. They have theological convictions that are accurate. However, they have hearts that are cold. Christians are people sometimes that might have theological convictions that sometimes may even be a little inaccurate. The goal is to have accuracy. But sometimes, some, some Christians can be a little confused. But the real issue is, do you have affection? Do you love Jesus? That's the goal. That's the desire. To sync up, to line up, to have our convictions of who Jesus is lined up with our affections of our heart. 
So these guys are told by Jesus not to go around preaching his name. And then what Jesus does in the next verse, in verse 13, he does something interesting as he gathers together a handful of people, a select group of people from this larger crowd, and then he goes off into a mountaintop. In verse 13, he says, And he went up to a mountain, and he called to them those whom he desired. Then he gave to them, and he gave, that he might call them. And then he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that he might be with them, and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. Simon, whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James, whom, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, Carnanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So what Jesus does is he takes a select group of people uh, that he is now going to commission. He's going to call them to something different, something unique. Predominantly in Jesus' ministry up until this point, the majority of Jesus' ministry was about come, listen, and live. Come, listen, and live. This is what people were hearing. They were coming out. They were being moved. They were trusting. They were living. Now Jesus calls a select group of people to go from come, listen, and live to go, do, and die. This transition had to happen. Because for the most part, it's not just about building a big group of people, a large church, a large gathering of people that simply function as nothing more than sort of a crowd that just listens. In a lot of ways, maybe this is the way for some of you your Christianity has been. You've been brought up in a church that has focused predominantly upon you hearing, you being inactive, you listening, you just participating in terms of a very uh, a, a, a distance type of a, a, an effort. Um, you tend to be more of a connoisseur. You listen, you watch, you sample, you taste. You're kind of like a wine connoisseur or a wine taster. You sample, you let it kind of swish around your mouth, you spit it out, and then you critique it. If you don't like a particular church, you go to another church that kind of suits you because you become sort of a connoisseur. You become somebody that for the most part just wants to sample it. You want to hear. You want to be fed. But what Jesus does is very important. He transitions some within the crowd. Ultimately, the whole body or corpus of followers of Jesus will at some point follow in the same footsteps of the disciples. That all of them will be called to go. To do, to do something, to live for Jesus, to be for Jesus what others need to be, have Jesus in their life to do, to do, to, to go, to do, and ultimately, in some cases, perhaps to die. That's what ministry is. That's what Christianity is. It's one of the reasons why Jesus would sometimes say these sort of um, um, almost paradoxical statements. He'll say things like, unless you die, you can't live you know, life begins by death. He'll say things like that and intend things like that to kind of get you to think the point of the matter is, is that that's true. Jesus wants us to understand that's the way life actually happens is via death. And so Jesus is going to transition some amongst this large crowd of people to go, do, and die. Ultimately, that becomes the mission for all of us. All right? And if you are maturing, if you're growing in your walk with Jesus, this will also become a part of your life. If you've been a Christian for 15 years and you're still just simply 
coming, hearing, and just simply observing. And that's all you hear. That's all your life is about. And you never have or never enter into that place of going, doing, and dying. Then you're not growing. Jesus desires for you to grow. And this is what Jesus is going to call his people to transition into. And so what I want to do now is I want to take a look at at least seven principles that Jesus establishes in terms of leadership that Jesus does by way of leading his disciples into sort of this other life, all right, of going, doing, and dying. The first thing I want to take a look at is that Jesus prays and then he moves. Now, in Mark's account, he doesn't tell us anything about Jesus praying. Mark keeps his account very brief very short and leaves out a lot of you know non-essential details to his particular story that he's trying to tell but in luke's account luke gives us this little detail in luke chapter 6 verse 12 it says in those days when he went out to the mountain to pray all night he continued in prayer to god and when day came he called his disciples and he chose them uh, to be the 12 whom he named apostles luke tells us that what jesus does is he goes and prays now, this is amazing to me that Jesus goes out and he seeks the Father. Jesus asks God to give him wisdom, to give him guidance, to direct him. Oftentimes, the way we go about doing things is we do, and then we pray in response or in return. It's almost like an afterthought. That's not the way Jesus worked. He always worked by praying first and then doing. And I would say, likewise, that's a good pattern for us to live in. I'll give you an example of this. When my wife and I first felt God leading us to move up to San Luis Obispo. We were originally down in Huntington Beach. That's where we both grew up. And the re- reality is back in around 92, we felt like God was calling us up here. We weren't certain of ourselves. Like, we weren't sure. We needed to really be certain. We needed to seek God. And so what we did is we kind of made a pact amongst ourselves. We've been married for a whole whopping year and a half. Had a lot of uh, marriage under our belt. In two years, we just thought we know exactly what we're doing. Uh, so how about we pray, see God, see if this is what God has for us. So what we did is we basically said, let's take a whole month and not even bring the subject matter of San Luis Obispo up to each other. The reason why? Because we did not want in any way to sort of misshape our affections for something that maybe God didn't want us to have. We figured, if this is God, our desire for San Luis will grow. Our desire to be in this city will just become a main focus of our heart. It will go from just being merely like an infatuation of the thought of, great, we get to move, we get to go be a part of something else, do something different, to actually wanting to be a real desire that's given to us or birthed in us by God. And so we prayed, we fasted, we sought God. And the important thing for us with regard to that was that God answered our prayer and very clearly demonstrated to us that, yes, he wanted us to move to San Luis Obispo to start a church so when we finally moved here, we got a little apartment on Pismo Street, downtown San Luis, and we just used what we had. It was a little apartment. We said, let's just have a little Bible study, prayer meeting, have meals. Let's just invite anybody into our house that we feel like we can meet and talk to and have them come on in. That's what we did. But the reality is there were times that we had moments of difficulty and hardship throughout the history of our, our church here, and we've been here uh, during this duration of time. And the reality is, is it was important for us to have prayed about this first because during moments of discouragement and hardship and trouble, we would have been tempted to bail because it was hard. There were moments where it was difficult. There were moments, you know, I had to work full time and try to pay my bills. And on top of that, pastor, shepherd, meet with people, do all sorts of things. And it was very stressful. There are times often when we find ourselves being tempted to want to just run. But the point of the matter is, is that because we sought God, we prayed, and God confirmed to us 
we know that for us, running was not an option. To run would actually be a form of disobedience. And so therefore, God allowed us. He led us. He directed us. So Jesus, in a lot of ways, is the same thing. He prays, seeks God, asks God's wisdom, asks God's direction. God leads him. He spends all night long praying. And for some of us, what this means, it means that you've got to pull away from Facebook, Twitter, put your phone down, turn it off, close your laptops. You've got to unplug. It's hard for some of us because we are so, we, we have our minds so filled with nonsensical information. It's just trivial stuff. I mean, look, I've been sucked into reading Facebook feeds myself. The point of the matter is when you're done doing that for half an hour, you're like, that's like eating cotton candy. It did absolutely nothing for me. It gave me a sugar rush, and that's about it. Now it's worthless. I need some real food. The point of the matter is this, is that we need to be able to know what it means to wait upon our Father, to listen to him. If Jesus prayed, Jesus, the Son of God, saw that it was important for him to seek the wisdom of his Father, how much more do we, adopted children, need to hear the wisdom of our Father? So the first thing we see that Jesus does is pray, then move. Second thing, Jesus called and named the available. So it's important to note in verse 13, it says this, and he went up to the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired that they might be with him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles. Now what I mean by this is calling the available. At this particular point, there were at least four people that Jesus called to kind of be a part of his special circle of friends or relationship. This is Peter, James, John, Andrew, and Matthew. So up until this point in the gospel account of Mark, we've seen a handful of people already following Jesus. So it wasn't that Jesus just grabbed these people out of the crowd, never talked to them, seen them before. Jesus had already had a relationship with them. But these guys, in particular, were hanging around. They were available. They were making themselves available. Wherever Jesus was, they were there too. And so Jesus pulled from the people that were already there. They were already part of the ministry. It's important to know this. In a lot of ways, when we look to raise up other people in the church and to pour into them and to train them and to guide them and direct them and help empower them for the work of the ministry, we look for people that are making themselves available. That's really who we look for because for the most part, what it tells us is that these are people that have a passion for Jesus. They love Jesus. People that don't really show up, people that are not available, people that don't know how to take care of themselves or manage their own lives and all they simply want is to be given ministry on a platter, but they don't want to make themselves available to kind of sometimes shovel garbage in the stalls around the sheep, sometimes they're people that can oftentimes be problematic. But Jesus looked for people that were available. These people were available. If you want to grow, you want to serve, you want to be a part of the discipleship process, my number one encouragement to you, make yourself available. Be around. For me, when I first became a Christian, I'll give you an example of how this worked for me. The very first thing I did, right after I started, started walking with Jesus, I didn't know anything about discipleship. I didn't know anything about what it meant to walk with God. No one, you know, gave me a book and showed me what to do. All I knew is I wanted to hang out where Christians were at. So I tried to go to every, like, gathering that I can get my hands on. Like, Monday night, they had a Bible study. I'd go to this Monday night thing. Tuesday night, there's a home group. I'd go hang out at the home group. Show up early. I told you guys this a couple weeks ago. This guy that got up there really early, and I invited myself to dinner all the time. Uh, Wednesday night, I'd hang out at my high school group. I'd, go, I'd show up early at my high school group. And I'd get there like 45 minutes early, even before the pastor was there, and finally walk in, and I'm like, what's up? I'm here. He's like, oh, hey, what's up? You're early. You're like, 
I've got anything I can do? He's like, yeah, why don't you set up the chairs? Okay, I'll set up the chairs. Anything else? Yeah, why don't you take down the chairs afterwards? I'm like, okay, great. I just made myself available. I didn't really care. I, I didn't understand what leadership was. I didn't understand what it meant to walk with Jesus. I didn't understand what it meant to do anything. I just wanted to hang out. I just wanted to be where Christians were at. God used that in my life to get me trained and help bring people into my life who would pour into me. I needed that. And I would say that's the way the early church I see for the most part function. The people that God used were those that were just there. They were available. I think of in the early church, guys like Stephen, one of the very first martyrs, the guy who died for his faith in the early church. Who was he? What was he doing? Well, before he was actually named sort of a kind of a deacon or a leader in the, in the early church, he was just a guy that just served. He was just a nobody, right? He was just a saint, loved Jesus. Jesus knew him. Jesus knew his name, but he just made himself available. My encouragement to you, just make yourself available. It doesn't matter what it is. You don't need a title. You don't need a name. You don't need to have some particular ministry head. We don't care about that. Jesus really doesn't care about that. But we do see that Jesus sometimes does organize things. But at the end of the day, what matters really is are we available? Are we making ourselves available to be used by God? Secondly, another thing that we see that Jesus does in this particular setting here is he actually gives these people a name. He gives these people a name. This is something that you and I can't do. Meaning we can give titles, but those titles are powerless. When Jesus gives a name, he also gives the power to fulfill that name. I'll give you an example. In the particular language that's used here, which is the Greek, it says that uh, Jesus then named the apostles. He gives them this name. But then he begins to give them other names. Like, for example, he calls uh, Simon Peter. The word Peter can be translated rock. Kepha is the Greek word. It's the idea of, like, you are a rock. Now, was Peter a rock? Was he a solid dude that always got theologically everything correct and accurate? No. Peter had a lot of issues, a lot of problems. But this is what Jesus does. Whenever he calls somebody, he also gives the power to be able to fulfill that. We don't have the power to do that. You and I, we can wish things, we can hope for things, but we don't have the power in our word to make something happen. Jesus does. He speaks, and it happens. It's very important to understand that Jesus gives names to these guys. He calls them. Names are important. They're significant. Names are markers. I'll give you an example of this. In our culture, maybe not so much in our westernized culture today, but in generations gone by, how significant names were. I'll give you two examples of this. One would be oftentimes who you were was dependent upon your last name. And if your culture was one that placed special emphasis upon vocation, then you would be named after a vocation. For example, Smith or Miller, all right? You were identified with your vocation, with what you did or your dad did or your grandpa did, all right? Other cultures that place emphasis or place importance upon a name having to do with tribe or family, they would associate you with some sort of name of, of your father or your forefather. So you might be called John's son, right? You're the son of John. Well, who's John? Well, John could be some dude in some fishing village that, you know, caught the biggest fish. Like, I want to be one of John's son. Well, you can't be. You got to be birthed into John's family, all right? Or Isaac's son, or you get the idea. The concept was that your name was your identity. It was who you were. We have the same largest way, concept I, way that I think that we can correlate this in today's culture would be we talk about name brands. Like 
you know, you might be like, I'm not into name brands. But the reality is we are. We care about a particular name brand. This is why it's like, given a chance, Sanyo or Sony. You'd be like, probably Sony, right? Like Mac or PC, right? You'd be like, probably a Mac, right? The point of the matter is this. We care about names because names are sort of a tag. They indicate something. They're about an identity. And sometimes there are cultural elements that surround that identity that we want to associate with that and be part of that because it also, you know, it bleeds over in a particular type of people or a personality trait that we want to have as well. But names are important. The reality is, is for all of us, this is one of the reasons why we as human beings, we are not content to just be some sort of a nameless face. We're not content if somebody were to just be like, you know, I'm going to give you a number. Like, that doesn't fly. I don't care who you are, just like, I'll be number A dash slash one, two, six. That's my number. That's my handle. Like, we're not okay with that. There's this element in one of the accounts that Jesus tells the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And there's been all sorts of theological, you know, discussion. Why was this guy Lazarus called Lazarus when he died? But then the other guy, he's just a rich man. There's no name. Well, some scholars have actually been led to believe that Perhaps because in the life, he was known as the rich man, and then in death, he has no riches, and therefore, he's lost his identity. This is why people, for example, let's say for instance, if you were someone that was young, pre-teen, and you were a movie star, and you were well-known, and then now, as a teen, you're nobody, you're not going to be selling movies anymore, you're just, you, you're, your name has kind of become stigmatized with the character that you played back when you were like eight. And now that you're like 16, you, you've lost your identity. Your identity was in what you used to be, but now it's not this anymore. So what are you trying to do? You're trying oftentimes to find some sort of new identity. Your name has been associated with something that does not define you and who you are anymore or who you would like to be anymore. This is one of the reasons why sometimes people will even commit suicide. If they're identified or labeled as something that they don't want to be or something that they find repulsive, we care about the names that we have. And we all live to some degree trying to carve out, shape a name for ourselves. This is why some of you have chosen the career paths you have. This is why some of you wear the clothes that you wear. Put the makeup on the way that you wear your makeup. Buy certain handbags. This is why you have certain cars or live in a particular area. This is why, because oftentimes we are desperately trying to find some identity or some label by which therefore we can find ourselves in that. And what Jesus is basically doing here is he's saying, don't you know that every other name that you either pick out for yourself or has been given to you is insufficient and will never satisfy you and will never lead to life? Therefore, I will give you a new name. The book of Revelation is this little section, one of the letters to the churches, that Jesus says, him who overcomes, I will give him a new name. I have absolutely no idea what that means. But it's something really good. It's something that Jesus says, look, you who overcome, you who make it through, I will give you a new name. I will name you. I will give you an identity. One that will last forever. One that won't fade away. One that won't crumble based upon the things that you try to hold on to and grasp and then find nothing more than elusive. Jesus says, I'll give you a name. That's what Jesus does here. He gives a name to these guys. And the name that Jesus gives also comes along with it, the power to accomplish that and to fulfill that in each of these guys' lives. That's why some of us would look at a guy like Peter 
and say, he doesn't seem very solid like a rock. But, again, Jesus calls people oftentimes, and then he gives them the power to begin to work in that or walk into that. That's what Peter's doing. That's what Jesus is doing by giving them their name. The third thing that we see Jesus does is he trains the called, not called the train. Here's what I mean by that. Is that oftentimes in our culture, we have this mentality where if you want to do something or be a part of something, you go out and you get trained. In a lot of ways, this is important. It's the way our culture works. But in a lot of ways, when it comes to serving God, we oftentimes carry that same idea over into serving God, where it's like we need to be trained, we need to pour into ourselves, we need to make something happen. It's one of the reasons why sometimes um, seminaries become the very first uh, non-thought-through uh, direction or impulse that people will go if they have some slightest inkling for serving God. They're like, I've got to go to seminary. Now, let me say this very carefully. I have no problem whatsoever seminary. I have a lot of good friends that have gone through seminary. Personally, I probably myself would have gone through it. I've been tempted to go through it at some point in the past, but I just don't have any idea how I'd get the time to be able to do it. So I have no problem with seminary. I think it's great. If that's what God leads you to do, that's great. All I'm simply saying is for the most part, if somebody thinks to be trained by a professional just because you have the training somehow makes you called, it's not true. It doesn't work that way. There's a lot of people that have been trained that don't have the calling. And what Jesus does here is he basically trains the called. He comes to those people that are called and says, I'm going to train you. In a lot of ways, this is important to note because we don't make leaders in the church. We don't make leaders. I can't make anybody a leader. Jesus calls leaders. We just confirm leaders. That's all we do. We look for people that are available. We look for people that love Jesus. We look for people that love God's people. And we say, let's hang. Let's pour out. Let's get together. Let's train. Let's disciple. Let's dig deeper. Let's give opportunities. Let's serve. And what happens is Jesus makes the leaders. That's what Jesus does. So what Jesus does is he trains the called. And what Jesus does is he does this by bringing people into a discipleship relationship. In verse 14 and 15, he says this, and he appointed the 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority and to cast out demons. There's two things that are really kind of part and parcel of Jesus' discipleship. First, Jesus says discipleship will involve you hanging out with me. It's kind of funny because in a lot of ways, you know, in kind of our fast-paced, westernized Christianity, we, we create all these programs and, and ways by which we can somehow speed up the discipleship process. Again, I don't, I mean, there's nothing wrong with trying to establish a program or to even give some sort of curriculum. I think that's all fine. But the, but the reality is, is that just because someone goes through like an eight-week course of discipleship doesn't necessarily make them a disciple, nor does it necessarily make them called. See what I'm saying? Now, those things can be helpful, but the point that I'm trying to make is this, is that what Jesus does, part of his discipleship, is he calls these people to come and hang out with him, to be a part of him, to be a part of his life, to walk with him, to eat with him, to pray with him, to uh, preach alongside him, to hear what he's doing, to watch him heal people. Discipleship really involves you sharing your life with other people. That's an important element. And again, a lot of ways, we live in a very individualistic culture and society where we want to have as little amount of time with other people as we can. That's why we love to text, by the way. Because we're like, I don't want to talk to the person, so I'll text them. Right? The rest of you that don't agree with that, you are all lying, because that's the way it works. We don't want to talk to the person, so we just text them. I know, I do the same thing. So my point is this, is that when that translates over into discipleship, 
You can't go deep. You can't have relationship. You can't go down into plumb the depths of other relational levels. That's what Jesus does with these guys. He hangs out with them. He calls them to come spend time with them. That's what he does with them. The second thing that we see is that not only does he, is he going to be with them, the second thing that we see is he also uh, gives them these, re- these responsibilities in verses 14 and 15. So he calls them or commissions them to go preach and to heal other people or to cast out demons. He gives them authority. So he calls them, here, go lead this teaching, go preach, go communicate, and also here, go to these demons and cast them out. He gives them the authority to be able to do that. Now, it's not their authority. It's delegated authority. This is really important. Uh, we'll talk more about this in a second here, because at the end of the day, all authority is always delegated authority. If you have any authority at all, meaning you run a business, maybe you're the owner of a business, all of that authority has been delegated to you. It's a gift from God. It's intended to be stewarded by you in a way that brings glory and honor to God. That's the point. So the reality is that Jesus, when he calls these guys, he entrusts them with opportunities to do the ministry. In reality, this is the way we try to operate as a church. We try to find people that are available, people that love Jesus, people that have a desire to want to serve, and we, we bring them into training. We want to train them. We want to spend time with them. We want to bring them into relationship and get to know them and get to know what their life is like. I'll give you an example of how we're doing this right now. At the beginning of the year, uh, it never fails. We're going to get completely inundated with tons of new people wanting to get married. It always happens January February, because that's when everybody proposes. So around March, we get these massive amounts of people that are like, I want to get married. Can you counsel me? We can't counsel everybody. So what we're doing is we're raising up a brand new team of people that we're calling pre-marriage mentors that are going to be trained. So the question is, what type of people did we find to do the pre-marriage mentorship or the mentoring? People that have never hung out with anybody, people that are reclusive, people that are completely absorbed in themselves. No, we find people that love Jesus and are already actively living a life full of hospitality, opening their hearts up to other people, spending time with other people, and they've never been asked. No one's ever commissioned them to do it. They're just doing it. They're just living out of the grace that God's already called them to do. Those are the people that we call. We're like, hey, I see that you're already doing this. Would you be interested in being a marriage mentor? We need them. We're going to, in a few months, we're going to be having tons of people that need to be discipled and coached and led and guided and helped out. Because they're going to be entering into marriage. And 50% of all marriages end in a divorce. We want to cut that down. We want the gospel to have an impact upon our culture. Beginning with marriages. And so the point that I'm trying to make is this. Is that Jesus trained the called, not called trained. The fourth thing that we see is this. Jesus assembled this diverse and strange team. This is amazing. So if you're going to assemble a team, what type of team are you going to assemble? Right? We talked about this a few weeks ago. Would you get assets or liabilities? Not liabilities, all right? You want assets. You want people that are going to be a benefit to your team, that are going to have gifts that shine, that kind of put your team above the rest and give it an edge. Just kind of the way you'd want to build it. So if you have a business, you want to assemble a bunch of employees that are really good, that you would actually give them the stamp of approval, no matter what it is that you do, all right? You want to make sure that there are people that you would give two thumbs up, double snaps, however you want to look at it, that you would approve of what they're doing. What does Jesus do? He goes out and he calls 12 guys that couldn't be more different from each other. I'll read you the list, kind of go through some of these as I read. He says, and he called Simon, whom he also named Peter, James, son of Zebedee, John, 
the brothers, whom he also uh, gave the name Boanerges, or Sons of Thunder. So we don't know exactly what Boanerges mean, other than it just means Sons of Thunder, meaning we don't know exactly why would Jesus give these guys this name. Um, there's some speculation, perhaps one of the best examples I'd heard, uh, again, it's just speculation, is that there's a time in Jesus' ministry with these guys that Jesus was out with these guys, and they came across a group of people that were doing ministry, and they weren't part of Jesus' initial discipleship team. They were another group of people. They loved Jesus. They were doing God's work. They just weren't part of, like, this team of 12. And so what these two guys did, James and John, they pulled Jesus aside, and they're like, hey, uh, want me to pick up the red phone, call God, and ask God to kill him by causing him to be consumed by fire from heaven? He's basically asking, do you want me to ask God to send a lightning bolt down and consume these guys because they're not on our team? Jesus is like, whoa, slow down, killer. You know, no, I don't want you to do that. That's horrible. You have a horrible temper, right? Some have suggested that maybe these guys were very temperamental, very protective, very just controlling, whatever the case is, that Jesus calls these guys, I want you on my team, okay? Uh, he goes on, talks about Andrew, Philip, uh, Bartholomew, Matthew. We saw Matthew a few weeks ago. Matthew, otherwise known as Levi, he was a tax collector, meaning he was a Jew, and yet he worked for the occupying government that every Jew hated, Rome. He was getting his paycheck from Rome, and the next guy in the list goes on and talks about Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, the guy named Simon the Zealot. The word zealot or zelotes. Uh, literally comes from a group of guys, kind of a sect, this radical sect. In fact, if they lived in today's culture, we would call them terrorists. These guys were terrorists. They hated Rome, absolutely revolted and rebelled against Rome when Rome first began to occupy. Now, it's not necessarily that Simon was part of that original group, um, but the reality is, is that Simon was part of the group that perhaps was part of that original group. So in other words, the same characteristic traits that would have been there, how do we know that? Because his name was Lottes meaning he was a zealot. He was part of that group. It'd be like saying, uh, you know, we put together uh, the Jewish Fundamental Club and Al-Qaeda. They're part of Jesus' team right now. Really? They're two absolute opposites from each other. You have one guy who wears the bow tie, works for the government, and you have the other guy who wants to blow up the government. And Jesus says, you're on my team. Why? It doesn't make any sense. I think in a lot of ways what Jesus is doing is he's calling together a group of guys that no one would have ever expected that it was from this group of people that the world was going to be turned upside down. Like no one would have ever looked at this team and thought, no, there's a winning team. Like these guys are, are going to do really radical things. Like no one would have ever thought of that. Everyone, in fact, imagine what type of backbiting and, and broiled battles they would get themselves involved in walking from place to place. I mean, it'd be like putting a Democrat and a Republican in the same community group and saying, serve alongside each other, love one another, spend time with each other, and have coffee with each other three or four times a week and just hang out. You've got two radically different political ideas and agendas. And you know what Jesus is saying? I want you to learn to put your agendas aside, and I want you to make the mission preeminent. So the gospel does. Is it takes former enemies... And it brings us into a brotherhood, a family, a fellowship. This is why it's really important for you guys to understand this, because some of you have never been told this. You come to church, you come into a church body, and you expect it to be a bunch of nice, really kind-hearted, special people. And you're like, these are a bunch of weird people. They're very opinionated, and some of them are just downright rude, and they're jerks, and they're not as nice as I expected. And 
I remember talking to people that were like pagans, and they were like nicer than the Christians are. How does that work? Because the reality is, is that Christians are saved sinners. We still sin. We still have these issues we're working through. And Jesus brings us together and says, you're in a body. Learn to love me. Learn to establish the gospel as being preeminent in everything you do. That's what Jesus does so that I can get the glory and no one would boast amongst yourselves. That's what he does. So he assembles this radically diverse group of people to do something amazing. The fifth thing that we see that Jesus does is he appoints leaders on his team. He appoints these leaders. Verse 13, he says, whom he also named apostles. All right? I want to show you guys a little diagram. And what I did is kind of have like three different ways of looking at this. One, you have teams. And then two, you have teams within teams. So Jesus starts by establishing certain teams. And then he establishes teams within teams. And then finally establishes teams with humble leaders. That's what Jesus does. In a lot of ways, this is a way that when a church grows or when something happens, when there's a lot more people that need to be uh, managed and loved and tended and sheep to be cared for, you've got to establish teams because not one person can do it on their own. When I first started the church in my living room and there's like 15 people there, it wasn't that difficult to somehow go out and have coffee with as many people that I wanted to. As the church has grown, as there's over 1,000 people that meet here on a regular weekly basis, I can't do that all the time. So what God wants to do is he wants to establish various layers of leaders. I'll give you an example of how this takes place in the book of Philippians. Paul the Apostle writes this. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to the saints in Jesus Christ who are in Philippi with the overseers or the elders and pastors and the deacons. So right there, you've got three basic elements or roles within a church. You've got saints, the believers, people who love Jesus, Christians, redeemed saints, redeemed sinners. You've got deacons, people that serve, love, take care of, help care for the needs and the needy in the church. And then you have elders. These are overseers. They're usually a plurality of leaders that come alongside and help shepherd and pastor the church. And so we see the same type of thing that Jesus does here in this. If you want to look at this diagram in the very center, you have Jesus. He's at the very center of it all. It's not like a you know, hierarchical study in, or chart. In some ways, it's Jesus at the very center of it all. This is the way all leadership should be. Jesus is at the center of it. But then Jesus also has other layers. In this particular case, we know that Peter, James, John, and perhaps Andrew were sort of kind of a main group of people, main core of people, out of the original 12 apostles that Jesus spent the majority of time with. There's lots of times in the gospel accounts that Jesus would spend time with just these uh, three or four guys. Um, probably because they needed the most time spent with them. Uh, they were the most efficient. Maybe they needed to grow and learn and whatnot. But the ca- case is, is that Jesus spent a lot of time with these people. And it would seem very clearly that Peter was sort of the spokesman of the apostles. That even in the New Testament, the book of Acts, when the early church started and people came asking the early church questions, Peter stands up and begins to speak. Now, Peter was not sort of an authoritarian rule. Peter's job was to lead amongst the other elders or apostles or leaders within the church. That's the way that biblical leadership always is, is that there's a plurality of leaders. There's a team of leaders. And we have the same way with, even within our own church. It's, this is not a Ponzi scheme. This is not some sort of pyramid structure where you have one guy at the top and everybody sort of fans out to support that one guy's vision. That's not the way this works out. I've even heard some people describe it in, in a flawed way, um, nonetheless, this idea of like you have Moses and Moses has his 70 elders and so everybody's there to support Moses. That only works if Moses is the equivalent to Jesus. If Moses is the equivalent to the New Testament picture of Jesus, meaning he's the main guy that's carrying out everything and everybody else is there, the, all the other elders or leaders are there to support and serve Jesus, then yes, that works. If it's that 
Moses is the equivalent to the one guy, the one pastor, the one visionary, the one main dude who gets all the control of everything, then no, I don't think that's accurate. And I think it's actually dangerous and it creates a system that will ultimately break down and end up hurting a lot of people. The point that I want to make is this, is that Jesus himself appoints leaders. Now I realize this is problematic for some because some of us in our culture were very skeptical and critical of leadership. Let me say this. If that's you, if you look at it and you think, I'm skeptical of all leadership. I don't believe in leadership. The reality is, is you have to ask yourself, do you believe in God? God's a leader amongst the Trinity himself. God is a leader. They're all equal. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all equal. And yet there's deference. Jesus submits to the Father. The Holy Spirit is sent by Jesus. There is an order. There's a system. They're all equal. In the same way, we see the same type of structure emulated to be emulated throughout every other social structure really in the world. Take, for example, the two most common ones, home. Amongst the home, for example, with me, I have a wife, one wife, and I have two daughters. I'm surrounded by women. I even have a female dog. But the point of the matter is, is that in my family, we're all equal. We're all equal. I'm not better than my wife, nor am I better than my two daughters. We're all equal. But I have a leadership role. I've been called by God, given the responsibility by God, been designated as the leader of that family, my goal or the purpose of my leadership in that family is really to establish some level of direction, doctrine, and discipline. Direction, where's our family going? How will our house live? That's for me in our house. We'll serve the Lord. Is that, is that the direction I'm leading? Doctrine, what doctrine will prevail, will lead? What, is it the American dream doctrine? Is that the doctrine I'll give to my family? Look, kids, the number one most important thing in life is get a nice big job. You'll get a big house. You'll have a dog, a white fence, two cars, a few LCD screens, maybe some sort of retirement, and you'll have a lot of vacations at your beach home. Is that the dream that I'm selling my kids? Is that the doctrine I choose to live by? Or is the doctrine the doctrine of Jesus? And then discipline. The idea of discipline is establishing justice, bringing about righteousness. So if I were to use my authority in a way to get my family to serve me as if I were to be a, a despot or a leader, that's abusing my leadership. The same is also true with business. Even the New Testament talks about this. Uh, talking to leaders or masters, people that oftentimes would have slaves. The New Testament writer or even John the Baptist talks to the, talks to the, um, the soldiers during his ministry. He says, look, here's the way that you can start Letting the gospel, letting God's word, letting God's kingdom begin to change you. Deal with people equitably. Don't mistreat people. Don't show favorites amongst other people within the kingdom of Rome. Don't steal from the people. Be honorable. Be honest. Use your authority in a way that points people back to God. Even if that might be by way of justice, demonstrating righteousness and justice. The same is true in the church. All church leaders. Are we all equal? Yes. Unfortunately, throughout the history of the church, there have been some bad men that have risen up and have oftentimes tried to hijack the role of leadership in the church and try to create kind of this bifurcation that there is the leaders of the church were the pompous big wigs that have all the power, drive the company jet, and then there's everybody else. You serve us. You're subservient to us. And that's abusive. When in reality, the way Jesus establish it, establishes it is he says the whole church is equal. You're all sons and daughters, and I'm king. And the role of leaders 
is to guide and direct and disciple and lead people back to the chief shepherd, Jesus. He's the king. We have one senior pastor in this church. It's Jesus. We have several elders and pastors and leaders in this church. And their job, their role, is to faithfully lead people to Jesus. That's our desire. And to establish a course of direction and doctrine and discipline. That's the goal. Jesus is to be the central leader of the whole thing. So that's what God wants to really establish. The sixth thing I want to take a look at is Jesus faithfully stewarded conflict. Now let me ask you this. Amongst the 12 that Jesus called, the last verse that we just read, in verse 19 it says this, and Judas Iscariot betrayed him. All right, so here's, here's the picture. Jesus prays all night, asks God, who should I appoint? And Jesus gets one guy who's a deceiver. He's a betrayer. So here's the question. Did Jesus know that? <laughs> Did he have any idea that he was getting a bad seed onto his team? The answer, yes. Of course he did. And yet at the same time, he knew that through Judas, who is totally guilty for his own actions and accountable for his own actions, Jesus managed that conflict. He stewarded that, stewarded that conflict ultimately to the glory of God. When Judas deceived him, when Judas betrayed him, Jesus didn't become embittered. Jesus wasn't writing blogs. Jesus wasn't saying nasty rumors about Ju Judas. Jesus was focused on the cross, and what the cross was all about ultimately is death. The final thing is this. Jesus finished well. Jesus finished well. Do you know that it's not as important how you begin as it is important as how you finish? Do you know that? Some of you started really well. Christianity for you, you started really well. You were on fire. You loved God. You served. You're involved. You're doing lots of things. But, you know, five years, 10 years, 15, 30 years into your Christian walk, you're not doing so hot. You're not zealous anymore. You don't love Jesus anymore. The affections in your heart have grown cold. What's important to Jesus is how we finish, not how we begin. Because really, all of the leaders began a little bit rocky. They all had their own issues. There's all sorts, and this is one of the reasons why I actually believe the Bible is the Bible. It's inspired word of God. is because why, if you're trying to spell a myth to get people to believe some sort of fairy tale about the Son of God, why would you add all sorts of negative items about the founders and the leaders of the original movement? You wouldn't unless they actually happened. And unless the original leaders of the movement were messed up, were a bunch of sinners that were shown great grace. It's just simple facts that the writers were documenting along the way. But the point of the matter is, is that what we see is that Jesus finishes well. He dies, yes. He stewards uh, the, or the disappointments well, the hardships well, but ultimately he dies, he rises again, he ascends back into heaven and he calls his disciples to live that same life, to finish well. That's what God desires for us. That's what God wants us to live, to be like. For some of you, what I invite you into is to leave just simply coming, hearing, and living. To move beyond that, to go beyond that, to be a disciple, to go, to do, to die. That's hard. It's difficult. It's certainly not popular. And for people that, like Americans that love to be lazy and just simply hear things and not really move, 
Because that's oftentimes how we are. We love, we are addicted to our comfort. We are. We all are. I am. We all are. It's something we need to acknowledge and recognize. But what I'm trying to say is that if comfort is our God, then we will never go, do, and die. We can't. Because our real God, comfort, is saying, don't do that. You'll get hurt. Don't do that. That's uncomfortable. Don't do that because that won't prosper you. But if the gospel compels us the way that the gospel intends to compel us, then the reason why we can go, do, and die is because we can see that's exactly what Jesus himself did. He came, he did, he died. For us. That's what the gospel is. We're moved by that. So for some of you, you will be motivated out of guilt. What I don't want for you to do is to be motivated out of guilt. That's a horrible way to move. It's not a good, sustainable way to build your Christianity. And it will either leave you arrogant, prideful, and pompous, or it will leave you totally broken and destroyed. Guilt's a horrible motivator. Love is a powerful one. And I would say it's the only one. And the only way to get your heart motivated and filled with love is for you to see the fact that Jesus came did and died for you and then calls you to come go and die just like he did because we have these huge promises attached to that that there's life that actually comes beyond that death that's the beauty that really the call that Jesus gives upon his disciples and upon us is one that leads to great life it's one of the reasons why Jesus says I've come not to do anything else but then to give you life his ultimate goal is to call us into life. The problem is, though, is that we actually already fundamentally think that we have life because we are carving out our own little name, our own little identity, and Jesus is loving enough and kind enough to say that if that is what you're building your life upon, then your life's fragile. Build your life upon the name I give you, and I'll give you a name. I'll give you a life. I'll change your heart. I'll give you power. I'll give you everything that you need because when I give you a name, I don't just give you a name, I give you a power by the power of the Holy Spirit to fulfill that. That's what I invite you into. We're going to sing. We're going to worship. We'll partake of communion. We have it in the back. There's little three stations. You can grab it. And when, what I want you to do when you partake of the communion, I want you to remember the fact that because the bread is broken, it symbolizes the fact that Jesus died for us. He had his body broken so that we who are broken, oftentimes we're broken by the way in which we try to carve out our own little identity. That Jesus was broken so that you and I who are really broken could actually be made whole. That's what Jesus does for us. I'm going to pray. We'll sing. Partake of communion. Confess sin. For some of us, we'll run to God and we'll ask God to give us a name. We'll ask God to forgive us for trying to carve out our own and finding a lot of failure in the meantime. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you that you love us enough to give us a name. We pray right now, God, that you would help us to tune our hearts, to worship you, to sing your praise.